This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 6th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Suzanne Bard interviews Bruce Joukowsky about the first data from the Mars MAVEN mission. And David Grimm is here with stories on worm allergies, fake fingerprints, and toilets for all. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what makes us allergic. Why are many people allergic to peanuts and like ragweed, but not rice or raisins? Obviously, peanuts have a molecule or molecules that trigger the immune system for some people. But there's new research that looks at a more basic question. Why are these molecules triggers for some people's immune systems? Were peanuts a threat to the human race in our deep past, Dave? This has been a longstanding idea in science that the allergies we have may sort of be evolutionary responses that started as a way to fight parasites. If you think back hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of years ago when our ancestors were living in places where they were being attacked by a lot of parasites, especially things like worms from the environment, they would have had to develop a strong immune response to these invaders. And the idea is that now that we have a lot of people in the developed world, we still are primed to have these strong immune responses. But when we don't have regular conflicts with these invaders, our immune system is looking for something else to attack. And maybe that's a protein on a peanut that maybe resembles what's called an allergen on a parasite, and that our immune system goes into overdrive and we get things like anywhere from sneezing to anaphylactic shock. How do the researchers go about bolstering this idea that there are similarities between, say, parasites and peanuts? Well, they went into this computer database, and then what they were looking for was similarities among more than 2,700 proteins that are known to cause allergies. And 
proteins from 31 species of parasites, and they wanted to see if there was any overlap. And indeed, they found that almost 2,500 of the parasite proteins that they looked at were actually very similar to proteins on things like uh, peanuts and pollen. They also tried to figure out how this would work in the real world. How do they do that? Well, what they did was they looked at more than 200 people in Uganda that were infected with a parasitic worm known as S. mansani. And what they found is about one in six of these people produced antibodies that recognized a protein on the worm. And what was interesting is that this protein was actually similar to a protein that's found on birch tree pollen, which is known to cause allergies. And what all this means is that this does seem to support the connection between that there's a similarity in the immune response we mount to worm parasites to the immune response we mount to allergens in the environment, such as those that are found on pollen. Could this link between worm proteins and allergens that we encounter more often these days be used to look for, say, potential allergens in new foods or drugs? That's the idea. You know, we don't want to be in for any nasty surprises with people having a very strong allergic reaction to a new type of food or food maybe they're not usually exposed to. So the more potential allergens we can find out there in the foods that we already eat or may someday eat, the more we can potentially protect people. Also, if you've heard of allergy shots, one of the ways those work is actually exposing people to an allergen that they might have a severe reaction to, but getting their body used to it. And so the more of these potential allergens we can find, the better these shots can be. Next up, we have a story on fake fingerprints. Okay, Dave, so fake fingerprints, are these scientific or are they just for committing crime? No, definitely scientific. What we're talking about here, Sarah, is a way to develop essentially artificial skin on our fingertips that would allow us to feel texture, sensations like heat, and even pressure. What makes them fingerprints rather than just skin? Well, what makes them fingerprints is they actually have a lot of the same ridges that our fingerprints have. So they actually have these patterns. And these patterns are actually kind of important to picking up the sensations that the researchers were trying to get them to detect. And basically what these things are is they're very thin, flexible material, again, with ridges and grooves, much like actual fingerprints. What this material is able to do is actually sensitively detect pressure from outside sources. If you can imagine when you push down on something, you're creating a pressure on your fingertip. Well, when these layers of artificial skin touch each other, when you have something like pressure on them, that changes the thickness of the material that is detected as pressure. It creates a a current which is monitored through electrodes. The larger the current, the stronger the pressure. This artificial skin can also sense temperature because when you have changes in temperature, this artificial skin can actually contract and relax, and that gets picked up and also transmitted as an electrical signal. And kind of the new new here is that this little bit of fake skin can hear? Right. Well, you know, when you talk about pressure, sound waves also create pressure. And what the researchers found that was really incredible was that when they put speakers next to this electronic skin, the skin could actually hear (laughs) what the speakers were producing. The the researchers actually had the speakers create a noise that had the word skin in it. And they actually found that their artificial skin actually picked up the sound better than a mic on a smartphone did. What are all these signals leading up to with this fake skin? Can you integrate it into a person's nervous system somehow? A couple of potential applications, giving people a sense of feeling back, maybe that they've lost. That's one application. 
And uh, of course, we want all of our humanoid robots to feel things just like we do. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we don't. Theoretically, if we wanted that, this would be a great way to accomplish that. I could also see us somehow interacting with the video game world where sure. these signals are, are transmitted. Getting these, uh, what would be a very virtual experience to become much more tactile. Lastly, we have a story on the power of toilets. Ready for a shocking number, Dave? Yes. A billion people around the world have no access to toilets. Many, many people defecate in trenches or out in the open, contaminating the environment and potentially transmitting disease. But maybe there's a way to make this poop pay. Right. Can we get this poop to work for us? And it turns out we might be able to. A new study ran some numbers on how much energy is stored in this human waste and what we could potentially do with it. And what they found is if you look at all of this human feces that does not get deposited in latrines every year, you could potentially do a couple things with it. One thing is you could actually turn it into something like coal or charcoal by heating it to very high temperatures. We're talking 300 degrees Celsius. This would produce charcoal-like briquettes that would yield up to 8.5 million tons of charcoal, which would be enough to heat 45 million homes every year. Wow. There's something else you could do, which is you could get all of this feces, round it up, ferment it with some methane-producing microbes, and this would create a lot of what's called biogas. And you could actually harness this gas to generate enough electricity to power an estimated 18 million homes. Would this pay, though? I mean, you're talking about infrastructure and building technologies around poop. The researchers ran the numbers on that as well, and they found, at least for when we're talking about fermentation, the system would probably cover the cost within just a couple of years. This report was released in honor of World Toilet Day, which is coming up on November 19th. Mark your calendars. Why are we celebrating toilets, Dave? Well, as you implied, Sarah, toilets are a very important public health issue. When you don't have access to toilets, you can have a lot of disease. In fact, a thousand children die every day from diarrheal diseases due to poor sanitation. And so this is not just an environmental concern, an energy concern, but a public health concern as well. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about using vitamin C to attack cancer. Also a story about whether religion makes kids less generous for Science Insider, a policy blog, we've got a story about a closer scrutiny of U.S. labs that deal with risky pathogens. Also a story about why the National Institutes of Health is suddenly paying more attention to chronic fatigue syndrome. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Mars is an exciting place these days, with the recent discovery of small amounts of briny but flowing water on the red planet. And this week, we get a first look at data from the Mars MAVEN space probe. MAVEN stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission, which has been orbiting Mars since September of 2014. Bruce Tchaikovsky led the mission and discusses these first results. I'm Suzanne Bard. We're building on previous missions that have shown a lot of geological and geochemical evidence for there having been climate change on Mars. Early Mars appears to have been warmer 
and wetter than the cold, dry planet we see today, and we're trying to understand why. MAVEN is looking at the role that the upper atmosphere may have played in the history of the climate. What role has escaped to space of gas from the atmosphere played? How much has escaped to space by what processes and when? This will tell us about the history of the atmosphere. Really, it tells us about the potential for life on Mars, at least at the surface, and it also tells us about the habitability of planets in general. Fascinating. When did you first start getting data back from MAVEN? We've been in orbit for just over an Earth year. However, it took us two months to commission the spacecraft and get ready to collect data. So we've been collecting data for just under an Earth year. What are the main questions you're trying to answer, and what are the instruments aboard the spacecraft that can answer these questions? In a nutshell, the MAVEN mission is trying to answer the question of where did the early thicker atmosphere that must have been present on Mars go. We think that it was there because of the ability to support liquid water. Where did the water go? Where did the carbon dioxide go? We're looking at the ability of the solar wind and solar storms to strip off atmosphere, and we're trying to measure the composition and abundance of stuff that's escaping to space and how much is escaping today and by what processes. And this will allow us to determine how much gas has escaped through time. So we have instruments that measure the solar input. We have four instruments measuring properties of the sun and the solar wind. And it may seem like a lot for a Mars mission, but we need to understand the energetic drivers of escape to space. So we're measuring the ultraviolet, the energetic particles, and the properties of the solar wind. And then we're measuring the properties of the upper atmosphere at Mars, the composition, structure, and variability, and then the behavior of ions. The ions represent two things. First, they represent a lot of the stuff that escapes. So by measuring them, we're understanding how much material is escaping today. And it also represents a source of stuff that can be slammed into the upper atmosphere and knock other atoms and ions off. So we're looking at the driver of a different escape process. You mentioned carbon dioxide, which is something we're very familiar with here on Earth as part of our atmosphere. What do you think happened to the carbon dioxide in the ancient Martian atmosphere? If you look at Mars today, it's a very cold, dry planet. It has a very thin CO2 atmosphere, less than 1% as thick as the Earth's atmosphere, and it's farther out from the sun. As a result, temperatures at the surface are some 50 Kelvin below the freezing point of water. Mars has very little liquid water at the surface today, and it can't sustain liquid water. Geological evidence, though, tells us that there appears to have been flowing water on ancient Mars early in its history. So what was different back then? In fact, the sun was dimmer 4 billion years ago, which means that any greenhouse warming to raise the temperature would have to have been even more effective in order to raise temperatures to the point that liquid water could exist. We think that Mars had a very thick CO2 atmosphere, and we're trying to understand where that atmosphere went. The CO2 from an atmosphere could go down into the crust and form carbon-bearing minerals, or it can be carried up to the top of the atmosphere and be stripped away and lost to space. We don't see any evidence for a thick reservoir of crustal carbon-bearing minerals it could be the repository of a thick atmosphere. So that suggests that loss to space must have been important. 
we're trying to quantify how much of that could have happened, how much loss could have happened, and when that loss occurred. And what's the effect of the upper atmosphere and the climate of Mars? The upper atmosphere of Mars has essentially no direct impact on the climate of Mars or on the main part of the atmosphere, but the conduit through which any gas from the atmosphere has to pass as it is lost to space. So stripping of gas to space occurs at the top of the atmosphere above about 170 to 200 kilometers altitude. So that's the region we need to study in order to see how gas might have been lost. What we're finding is that the rate of loss out the top is relatively slow today, maybe only 100 grams per second globally. But over time, that can be a significant loss. And we think that that's the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, that early in history, the loss rates were much greater and that this mechanism could account for loss of a very thick early atmosphere. Interesting. Now, what about Earth? I mean, did Earth ever have losses like this? And why or why not? What do we have that Mars doesn't? Earth is different from Mars in this regard in that it has a global dipole magnetic field. The magnetic field is generated from motions of the core. We think that Mars had a field like that very early on, but the core must have frozen out and the generation of the magnetic field stopped. The magnetic field at Earth causes the solar wind to stand off farther from the planet than it does at Mars. At Mars, it can hit the top of the atmosphere directly and interact with it, strip away gas molecules, ions. At Earth, it stands off a very large distance, and it doesn't interact directly. So Earth doesn't suffer the same kind of loss. Now, Earth is losing gas out the top of its atmosphere, but at a low rate, and because it has a thicker atmosphere to begin with, probably not at a rate that can change the climate over billions of years. So that's the fundamental difference between Earth and Mars. Interesting. How does your work that you do on the upper atmosphere relate to what the rovers are doing on the ground? The studies we're conducting of the top of the atmosphere and the studies that the rovers, Curiosity, Opportunity, are carrying out at the bottom of the atmosphere are very complementary to each other. In order to understand the behavior of the atmosphere, you have to understand the whole thing from the bottom to the top. The composition couples, the gas that is being lost out the top comes from the main part of the atmosphere and is reflected in the composition and behavior at the bottom. So they're very complementary to each other. What we're finding really is that Mars is a complex system that the environment involves the upper atmosphere, the lower atmosphere, the polar caps. It involves geological processes because of outgassing of volatiles from the interior associated with volcanism, for example, and then couples to the deep interior of the planet through heating that can produce volcanism. In order to understand the behavior of Mars, we need to understand all of those different components. MAVEN is really the first spacecraft devoted to studying the upper atmosphere. At the same time, we're interested in questions about life, and we have to ask what controls whether life can exist. Liquid water is probably the dominant characteristic. The geological evidence points toward there having been liquid water at the surface in ancient times, but not at present, or certainly not in significant amounts. And that means if we want to understand the potential biological history of Mars, we also have to understand the changing climate and to do that, we study the top of the atmosphere again. 
So this week the MAVEN team has four papers coming out in science and another 44 in geophysical research letters. That's a lot of number crunching. What do you most want people to know about these results? So the key findings that we're publishing this week all relate to how escape occurs and how much escape is occurring today. What we're seeing first is that the escape rate is around 100 grams per second. That's a global integrated amount but that that's not a constant. It varies depending on the properties of the sun. And in particular, it increases dramatically during a solar storm event when a coronal mass ejection hits Mars. The variability that we're seeing suggests that the escape rate must have been much greater in the past when the sun was more active and more intense. So we think we're seeing pretty good evidence that loss to space was a significant player in changing the Mars climate. So it must be pretty exciting to have a research spacecraft start orbiting and collect data around a planet, especially a planet like Mars. What was it like for you as a scientist once it got there successfully and started collecting data? We've been working on the MAVEN mission for 12 years. We started in late 2003. So the launch of MAVEN, the arrival at Mars, the fact that it's working well and sending back the data, it's an indescribable experience. It's incredibly exciting, incredibly satisfying. Just to be involved in a mission like this is exciting. And to have had the opportunity to design the mission, to focus on the science questions we think are important, is just an incredible opportunity. We have a science team that is about 125 people and everybody is just beside themselves with the quality of the data and the results we're getting. I can imagine that must be a great experience for everyone. So what's next for the MAVEN mission? Well, first of all, the results we're publishing this week only represent the data from the first half of the year we've been collecting data. We still have a lot more data from the primary mission, and we haven't had the opportunity to do all the analyses we're doing. So the team is incredibly busy just trying to learn what the data are telling us about Mars. Beyond this first year, we've been approved for an initial extended mission of about a year. And that will let us measure the second half of a Mars year, because a Mars year is two Earth years. And we'll see how the behavior of the upper atmosphere changes through the seasons. But also, the sun is going through the declining phases of its solar cycle. So we'll be able to watch that decline and see how the upper atmosphere system responds in a quieter time in the solar cycle. We have enough fuel to last perhaps as long as a decade, and it would be truly spectacular if we could collect data in orbit around Mars for a full decade, for a full solar cycle, and understand the system and how it responds to all of the different forcing. Great. Well, it's fascinating to see Mars unveil itself little by little. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's really my pleasure. Thank you. Bruce Tchaikovsky and his colleagues write about the evolution of the Martian upper atmosphere this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.